Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Journey from Platform Nine and Three Quarters. So first off with the title, normally we have a whole discussion about what the title means, but in this case, it's very literal. It's just the journey from platform nine and three quarters, and it tells the story of Harry's journey from King's Cross Station to Hogwarts. So not too much to unpack there. But actually, in the content of the chapter, the Dursleys take Harry to King's Cross, and they laugh at him because they know there's no such thing as platform nine and three quarters. Um, And the only reason that Vernon takes Harry at all is because he was already on his way to the hospital in London to get Dudley's tail removed. Harry, who is very confused by the lack of platform nine and three quarters, then spots the Weasleys, who help him to get onto the platform by teaching him to run through the divider. Then, when they're on the train, Harry meets uh, Ron Weasley and Hermione and Neville. Uh, He buys lots of sweets, and he becomes friends with Ron, and then he formally meets Malfoy. Um, He rejects his friendship, and then um, they reach Hogwarts. Everyone's freaking out because Harry's famous, and then Hagrid greets the first years coming off the train, they get on some boats, and they sail across the lake to the castle. So now moving into the plot of the chapter, we get introduced to a lot of new characters in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, so which ones did you notice? So first off, um, we get a sort of formal introduction to Harry's owl, who he names Hedwig. And it's mentioned that he names her after a figure in the history of magic, his textbook, but we don't actually know who that was. Um, then he meets all of the Weasleys. Um, Mrs. Weasley, who is warm, friendly, kind, stern when necessary, but in general, motherly figure. Um, Percy, who comes off as pompous, arrogant, and sort of rule-loving. Um, Fred and George, who come off as the quintessential jokesters of the family. Friendly, helpful, clever, but very loyal. Uh, Ron, who Harry immediately befriends, who is also new at Hogwarts, overshadowed by his many brothers' achievements. Um, he's sort of jealous of others. Um, and he's fiercely loyal to his family and friends. And then we get Ginny, uh, who is the youngest. She's excitable, uh, and it also establishes early her fascination with Harry as sort of a celebrity crush, which is very cute as a 10-year-old. So starting off with Harry and Ron, that's like one of the most important relationships in the whole series, and we first get a glimpse at the blossoming of the relationship here on the train. Um, the first thing they really bond over is they're both sort of new at going to Hogwarts and they're, they're both worried about what's going to happen to them when they get there. Ron's worried that he might not be placed into Gryffindor because everyone else in his family has been for generations. Um, and he's worried that no matter what he does to succeed or impress people, it won't be enough to really make a name for himself because all of his brothers have already done everything. Whereas Harry is worried because he knows absolutely nothing at all about the wizarding world that he won't be able to do anything at all. He's worried that he's going to be the worst in his class. But Ron sort of reassures him saying, you know, there's loads of people from muggle families and they all learn quick enough. So don't worry too much about it. Um, They talk about growing up without money. Um, They talk about, you know, um, Quidditch, where Ron explains to Harry all about um, how Quidditch works and things like that. And they eat a lot of sweets together. And that's sort of how they bond. So Harry and Ron also both have their first interaction with Hermione Granger in this chapter. Ron's first introduction to Hermione is him embarrassing himself by doing his fake magic in front of her, which she sees through immediately. Um, And it's interesting because Hermione comes across as 
really um, kind of nerdy, which she obviously is, and but she also comes across really like socially inept in the beginning of this. Um, yeah, she's and, kind of like disdainful of Ron because he fails at magic, and she's like, "Oh, I can't believe like you didn't know that that spell would work. Like I've only tried a few simple spells, but all of mine have worked." So yeah, she seems she seems pretty bossy, which she is later, but she definitely. She definitely evolves a lot. That's what I noticed from this first interaction yeah, because sure. I don't remember her being sort of as rude as she is in the beginning. Um, she kind of tells them off for fighting and for not being in their robes. She's just being kind of nosy. And it's interesting because obviously we know that Ron and Hermione end up together romantically. So like this was the first time they met. Right. When they tell their kids like how did you and how did you and mom or how did you and dad meet? The story is going to be like oh we met on the train to Hogwarts. And they're going to be like, when details, I made a details. fool of myself. Yeah, yeah. Ron's going to be like, I made a fool of myself. And she told me that I was being an idiot. You know? Yeah. Um, so they're probably going to remember yeah. it fondly, I'm yeah. sure. But, but here we see Ron gets pretty annoyed with her, actually. Yeah, and I just forgot that this was their, their introduction. Um, it's pretty funny. And then we also get Malfoy's first real introduction. So Harry has mm-hmm. um, met him before in Madame Malkin's um, last chapter, but... He doesn't know who he is. So we see him here again, assuming that Harry wants to be friends with him and cares about class as much as he, Malfoy, does. But this is a moment where Harry again chooses the the good side, you know, the side where he's rejecting Malfoy's classist attitudes and sticks with the more lower class Ron, who already seems to be a good friend. And then Ron shows him after the fact that Malfoy's family were big Voldemort supporters last time and their families have been feuding ever since the Weasleys and the Malfoys Mm -hmm. um so that kind of solidifies for Harry that he doesn't know much but he knows that Voldemort's bad and killed his parents so he does not want to be associated with him yeah I mean it's basically telling him I made the right choice there right it's it's a good moment for him so all these kind of interactions in terms of the trio of Harry Ron and Hermione and Malfoy are all established within a very few pages and even though Hermione is kind of on the outs and not friends with them yet it's all these things are established very quickly Mm -hmm. so the final main character that we meet is Neville who comes across as very nervous um he mentions his grandmother who is very domineering and he's lost his toad which we'll talk about a little bit later um seems to have very low self-esteem and sort of be the kid who's going to get picked on um that's kind of how he establishes himself at the beginning Mm -hmm. um and we'll talk a little bit more later about the four of them harry ron hermione and neville and sort of how some things about them are foreshadowed later in the the chapter we also meet crab and goyle um although nothing really establishes them as anything other than malfoy's friends uh and we meet another character who we will leave off the discussion of until later on in this podcast So in this next section, we're going to talk about the writing of the chapter and anything we noticed from a sort of symbolic or metaphorical perspective. So Madeline, was there anything that you noticed about this chapter? Yeah, towards the end of the chapter, I noticed a kind of metaphor when Hagrid is leading all the first years in the boats to Hogwarts. There's a lot of dark imagery in general around this scene. And also Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Neville are all in a boat together because it's four to a boat and they're all... They all happen to get in together. And I just thought this was significant, and I never thought about this before, but 
it's significant because these four will be the ones to save Hogwarts in the end. And this is the first time they're going to Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. They're being led um, in this kind of spooky way to Hogwarts. And they're seeing it for the first time. But these are the four people that are really going to be responsible for saving Hogwarts and the Wizarding World in general later on. Yeah, which is cool. It's sort of like tying them all together really early not knowing of the four of them not knowing that their their fates are going to be tied together in the end as well when they all have to bend together to save the school and the greater wizarding world there that group of people are also together two more times in this book in a scene um, in an important scene they're probably together in classes and stuff as well but i remembered the midnight duel the four of them being together as they try to run away from uh filch and they stumble upon the uh, Forbidden Corridor and the Three-Headed Dog. Um, and then at the end of the book, um, in the common room, when Harry, Ron, and Hermione are trying to leave to go to secure the Philosopher's Stone, and Neville intervenes and stands up to them and says, you shouldn't go. Um, and so the four of them definitely are like a big like symbolic group that, that is very purposeful in this book. Another bit of foreshadowing I noticed in this chapter was of Quirrell trying to steal the Philosopher's Stone from Gringotts. We hear this briefly from Ron, who is asking Harry if he's heard about this news story. Um, that that there was a break-in. That there not was that a break-in. Quirrell specifically Right, did. not that Quirrell. We don't know who it was, um, just that there was a break-in, and that's it. But we know that that is what happened. Right, and that also... We can, we can also link that to the end of the series when Harry, Ron, and Hermione break into Gringotts to try to steal yeah. Hufflepuff's cup and the sword as well. So this was the first break-in that they ever heard of happening at Gringotts. And Hagrid told Harry, you'd be mad to try and rob it. And someone did try and rob it. And then Harry remembers that in book seven. Like, when when they're planning on robbing the place, mm-hmm. he's like, well, I know that someone did it once. Yeah. And even though they didn't steal anything, they managed to get out without being detected. So it is possible. Um, so that was an interesting moment that I was thinking about. Um, another uh, thing that I noticed about this chapter was that there was a, a conversation that didn't need to happen. And I remember we talked about these as being sort of a, a thing that writers rely on sometimes to give readers information um, in earlier episodes. Um, here it happens between Mrs. Weasley and her family. They're walking through King's Cross Station and Harry overhears Mrs. Weasley asking her family uh, what the platform number is because she's forgotten it. And Ginny responds, nine and three quarters. And so Harry goes, ah, they're wizards. Okay, but she would I can of course them. know. But yeah. of course she would have known what the platform number is. It's impossible to forget something like nine and three quarters, especially since she was a Hogwarts student herself. And she has been taking her kids to <laughs> platform nine and three quarters every year for probably eight or nine years. Yeah. So uh, there's no way that she would have forgotten it. And it 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 highlights that that conversation really only happened for Harry's benefit and the reader's benefit to, to be mm. like a flashing sign saying, this is a wizard family, you can ask them for help. Right. So some other interesting writing moments come up um, when Rowling is kind of characterizing the Weasley family. So she uses a lot of dialogue to characterize them, especially Fred and George. We really get a sense of their personalities and their jokester sensibilities from Mm -hmm. all their back and forths. And I think we'll have a quote about that later, but um, that's, we really get a sense of them and how they're going to 
be in the rest of the series. Yeah, we really get a good sense of how the family dynamics are and how they all interact with each other. And I think Rowling's use of dialogue here is like really very strong for setting the scene. And it's almost, as we said before, it's almost play-like in the way that Mm -hmm. they have back and forth all the time. Um, Just boom, 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 line after line without any like narration in between or anything like that. It's very, very strong writing, I think. So also when Harry first meets Ron and starts talking to him, he assumes that the Weasleys must be the exactly the kind of wizarding, old wizarding family that Malfoy was referring to when um, he first met him in Madame Malkin's. And this doesn't upset him. He's just kind of neutral about it. He's very intrigued by them. um, And he really wants to just learn more about what it's like to grow up in a wizarding family. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just kind of interesting because he doesn't know that this is actually a very low-class family, although they are purebloods, they are still lower class. So Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of kind of class and, you know, family issues coming up in this chapter already, but Harry is just completely unaware of them, and he's just blindly going in um, trying to absorb everything that he can. Yeah, I mean, he's almost like... He's almost like colorblind in a sense. He doesn't see like he doesn't see people as being like pure blood or half blood or mud blood because he doesn't know what any of those things are. And even when someone is like, "Oh yeah, like my whole family are wizards," he's just like, "Oh yeah, cool." He like you know it like doesn't really mean that much to him. But yeah, he he's, doesn't he's know fascinated anything. by them because he wants to learn like all about their culture and stuff. But he like he doesn't realize that there is this like classist system in place for some people. He doesn't realize that there are in-groups and out-groups and all this stuff. And it's also kind of even more complicated by the fact that he has recently realized that he is actually quite wealthy um, because of the money that his parents have left him. Right. And so he is actually, you know, even though he grew up with not having anything because of how the Dursleys treated him, um, he now has come into all this money and he's only 11 and it's just kind of complicated in general with all these sort of class politics with the wealth thing it's like he doesn't he probably still hasn't really realized like how this will affect him or how this does affect him or anything um and and the fact that he is like in a different social class now that he has money like probably he probably hasn't really realized that i mean like the first thing he really spends his money on that is frivolous is just like buying a whole ton of sweets from the cart and it's a good reminder that he's like he is eleven, and that's something yeah, that an eleven-year-old that just inherited a million dollars would do—is just buy a whole bunch of candy, right? Know? But it's already, you know, it's already showing the disparity between himself and Ron because Ron is like can't even buy one thing of candy. He doesn't have any money. He has these sandwiches, and Harry's able to buy everything, and he's just kind of naive and just is like, "Sure, I want to share with you," and it's really nice and generous, but. I think Ron is more aware than he is in general about Mm -hmm. money and about the sort of privilege that Harry has that he doesn't have. Yeah, Um, and that will be a point of contention for their relationship a lot, a lot in the future. But I think early on in this scene especially, he hasn't yet become so ashamed of his lower class, lower wealth status that he's not willing to accept gifts and, and displays of generosity from Harry. Where Harry's like, here, I'm just gonna buy all these sweets. Do you want half of them? And Ron's like, yeah, sure, let's do it. But later on in the series, he becomes it yeah, will he's become, not into that. It will he become a thing that. where Ron will resent Harry's generosity because he will feel like, you know... He's a he, charity case. He's yeah. a charity case, yeah. yeah. And he doesn't want to feel like that. And he already feels so inferior to Harry in general later in the series. Yeah, and 
which is also interesting because that already comes up in this chapter with Ron's feelings of inferiority with his family. Mm-hmm. And for a while, he will feel, you know, equal with Harry, but that does change, as we mentioned. So it, yeah. it's interesting. There's a lot of... It causes a lot of tension in their relationship, Yeah, for sure. it's a lot of... A little bit... I don't know if it's foreshadowing, but just a little bit of things set up for the future between their relationship and the conflicts that they'll have. Yeah. And um, speaking of sweets, we do get a really good introduction in this chapter to all the different types of wizarding sweets. There's a whole paragraph about them. And this is one thing that I love about J.K. Rowling's writing is she does not hold back when it comes to describing food. Yes, that's the best. She's one of my favorite authors for that. Yeah. Um, There are certainly other authors that maybe go a little more head over heels for food, but at least she will give names to all these things that I've never heard of as an American boy growing up in the States. I'd never heard of treacle tart or anything like that before I read these books. Yes, we'll get more of those coming Definitely up with the we, Hogwarts when we get feast. the feasts for sure. But importantly, we're also introduced to wizard cards here and chocolate frogs, um, particularly Dumbledore's wizard card, which is important for two main reasons. First, um, his defeat of the dark wizard Grindelwald in 1945, which will become an important plot point in uh, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. So that's mentioned on the card. That's mentioned yeah. on the card as one of his chief accomplishments. Um, and his work on alchemy with Nicholas Flamel, which will become important later on in this book. Um, and this is an example of Rowling's incredible gift for planting tiny clues early on in the story for the reader to find on, on a second or a third read through or a first, if you're very astute. Um, but it, it will become important to the characters when they remember this fact later on, but they won't remember it for a very long time. And this also establishes the fact that wizard portraits move and interact with our viewers, which is our first introduction to that, obviously, as well as Harry's. Yeah. And we could have a whole discussion about the consequences of that if we were to interpret this as being a real world phenomenon, but let's not go there for now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, because that would be we'll a very long discussion. We'll have much more later about portraits. And lastly, listeners, I want to tell you the story of Trevor the Toad. <laughs> And his incredible journey throughout this chapter. So we know that Neville's toad Trevor goes missing while they're on the train. At the end of the chapter, Hagrid finds a toad, which turns out to be Trevor, in Hagrid's boat when they're about to reach Hogwarts. So here's how that happened. Trevor the toad hops out of Neville's bag or hands or whatever on the Hogwarts Express, finds himself a hiding place or just goes exploring or whatever, gets off the train at the platform in Hogsmeade, follows the first years and Hagrid down the path to the lake, gets into Hagrid's boat, and then sails with them, at which point Hagrid figures out that Trevor is in his boat. So this is either one very lucky toad or one very smart toad, and either way, just a very incredible story. When you were telling that story, what I pictured was um, Trevor jumping off the train into Hagrid's big coat. And getting oh, into one of those pockets. That could be true, And then too. riding along. So I don't think he... Well, in my mind, he didn't hop all the way behind them. He rode along in Hagrid's coat. And then Hagrid <laughs> has so many things in his coat anyway that he didn't notice. And he just popped out into the boat. That is a much better explanation. I like that a lot more. So in this next section, uh, we like to talk about our favorite quotes from the chapter. So let's start with you. What was your favorite quote? So my favorite quote was on pages 93 and 94. And I've cut out some bits in the middle, but this is mainly what the quote says. 
He was going to smash right into the barrier, and then he'd be in trouble. He broke into a heavy run. He wouldn't be able to stop. The cart was out of control. He closed his eyes, ready for the crash. It didn't come. He kept running. He opened his eyes. A scarlet steam engine was waiting next to a platform packed with people. A sign overhead said Hogwarts Express, 11 o'clock. Harry looked behind him and saw a wrought iron archway where the barrier had been, with the words, Platform 9 and 3 quarters on it. He had done it. Hmm. So I like this quote because it's just really magical to me. It's such a Um, magical moment. It's such a magical moment. This is like when he's literally bursting through, crossing into the wizarding world. A physical barrier between the wizarding world and the muggle world. Exactly. And even though he was in Diagon Alley, this is him actually going to his part of the wizarding world, going into Hogwarts, and he's alone, and it's really exciting, and he had done it. He's made it. He's gone into the new chapter of his life. Mm -hmm. Um, This is him crossing over... Yes. Into the new adventure. And having gone to Harry Potter World and gone on the Hogwarts Express, it was very exciting to see the Hogwarts Express rolling up. Um, <laughs> so I was just thinking about that as I read this quote. And what quote did you choose? I chose one a little bit later on um, as the Weasley family is standing about on the platform waiting for the train to leave. Uh, it's on page 96. Now, you two, this year, you behave yourselves. If I get one more owl telling me you've you've blown up a toilet or... Blown up a toilet? We've never blown up a toilet. Great idea, though. Thanks, Mum. It's not funny. And look after Ron. Don't worry. Ickle Ronnykins is safe with us. Shut up, said Ron again. He was almost as tall as the twins already, and his nose was still pink where his mother had rubbed it. So, I just chose this quote because i as i alluded to earlier i think that the dialogue in this chapter is a really good illustration of the dynamics of the weasley family and how they all interact with each other and as you can see here um, mrs weasley is sort of admonishing the twins for their general lack of care for the rules while they're at school and she doesn't want to hear about any more of their antics doesn't want to get letters home from hogwarts about what they get up to there she just wants them to to play it cool and um we we hear that the twins are supposed to be looking after Ron, who's only 11, in his first year, and Ron is already resentful of that fact. He wants to just be his own person. And the twins, I think, are, are sort of willing to let him do that. They don't seem to be, like, the most, like, caretaker-ish persons. But they do care about him, obviously. Um, but they still are going to, like, joke with him and make fun of him and stuff and be older brothers. I actually think that this last line in the quote, when you read it, kind of hit me where it says he was almost as tall as the twins already and his nose was still pink where his mother had rubbed it. That's just a really interesting sentence that kind of explains Ron um, because he's almost as tall as the twins. So he's kind of large for his age. He's going to be large. He's growing up fast, but you know, his, his mother has just rubbed his nose and that's obvious. (laughs) So he's kind of very, very much in between, um, you know, being a child and being an adult, as they all are, but, I mean, they're only 11, but it's just kind of this this representative of this very awkward phase yeah, absolutely. Um, that Ron's in. It's clearly like a transition. He's leaving home probably for the first time, and, and he's, he's experiencing some first growing pains, yeah. basically. Yeah, I think it's a really great quote for that reason. So this last section, we like to talk about a new thing that we noticed when reading this chapter, for this time. So, David, what did you notice? 
Well, one thing that I had never thought about before, and I'm surprised that I'd never thought about before because it is a fascinating question, is how how do Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia explain Dudley's pigtail when they go to the hospital to have the surgeon remove it? That's a great question. I never thought about that either. It would cause some really awkward questions. Uh, first off, is your son a hybrid pig boy? <laughs> uh, <laughs> How does that get? Th- I mean, once they saw that it was actually attached, they yeah. would be. I would think that Dudley would want need to be studied in some scientific thing. I wonder if. And here now, I'm thinking about conspiracy theories about the magical world. But I wonder if, like. As soon as the hospital gets wind of like what happened to Dudley, if there's just like pe- like magical people within the Ministry of Magic that are like monitoring that and are like uh, gonna just like come and whisk him away to St. Mungo's to have the surgery so that he's like away from Muggle doctors who won't see this and won't have to like. Or if it just ma- it vanishes, or if it turns into like a pimple or something like when they yeah. see it, so it's something that looks medical and. I, that's interesting. Maybe, yeah. They must have some failsafe for that because there must be people that... Or they would just have to obliviate a whole bunch of doctors, which is never a clean solution yeah. to that sort of thing. That's interesting. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, just a lot of awkward questions. Can you imagine going into a like a hospital and having to tell the surgeon, like, oh, I have a pig's tail on, yeah. on my butt. And the surgeon's like, oh, you mean like it got stuck in there? And you're just like, no, it's just <laughs> there now. It's just I part hope, of me. I hope what happened is that <laughs> they went and said that. And then when the doctors looked at it, it was like a pimple. And they like thought they were crazy or something. <laughs> that I think would be that pretty would be funny. funny. Yeah. Well, I hope it was that simple. But that's a good point, though. I never, never thought, thought about, about it. Either. Yeah, <laughs> I never thought about like what are the consequences of this, you know, comical act by Hagrid. Now that they're like they're actually having to deal with it in the real world now. But anyway, um, what was the new thing you noticed from this chapter? So the new thing I noticed was that Scabbers slash Peter Pettigrew was always there from the beginning, um, which I think I knew on some level, but I forgot that Ron had Scabbers since first year. Um, and then I thought more about that and I'm just wondering, you know, how exactly did he get to be with the Weasleys? Um, because this is a coincidence, you know, he obviously didn't know that the Weasleys would become friends with Harry, but he was probably just trying to lay low and be with a wizarding family that he could hear some things about the ministry, um, or, you know, just, it's a good family for him to be with in his position. Yeah, I think, um, I think... The way that he ended up there was that after he faked his death, he knew that he needed to be um, on the lookout for signs of A, Sirius Black escaping from Azkaban and coming after him, or B, Voldemort returning and becoming powerful again, either of which would mean that he would need to come out of hiding or find a different hiding place. Mm-hmm. So in that way, he need, he knew that he needed to be with a wizarding family um, who could look after him and care for him and uh, not mind that he's a rat. Um, and so he could read the paper and things mm-hmm. like that. Um, so he chose the Weasleys probably because they're an old wizarding family with a lot of children. Um, Percy would have been around four or five years old um, at the time that Pettigrew faked his death. So that would, you know, five-year-old getting a pet rat. It's not super uncommon. Yeah, but, you know, did he choose them or did they choose him? You know, he's a rat. He can't. I, it's just interesting to think about. How I mean, I would imagine like I would imagine like Pettigrew travels to uh, the borough. He knows where it is, or he's heard of it, or something, and oh, just so like sets that... up shop there. And then they're oh, like, they "Oh, a rat! Him. Can we keep it?" You okay, know, or something like that. All right. Well, that that's probably what happened. Um, I also just thought it was cool that 
he was not only introduced, but he actually attacks Goyle. So yeah. that's kind of interesting. And I wonder why. I wonder, is this, you know, Pettigrew attacking Goyle? And is that for some reason? Or is it just him being a rat and being annoyed? Or does Goyle have food? Or like, I don't know. I, I, it's an interesting question. I think um, later on when, when in Prisoner of Azkaban, when Pettigrew like is defending himself in the Shrieking Shack and, and saying like, you know, I've been a good person. I was a good rat. I was a good pet. Mm-hmm. You know, you can think about this moment as being like one of the only times that Scabbers ever did anything for Ron. Yeah. Um, but he does do something for him here. I mean, he mm-hmm. does like defend them. Uh, and, and Maybe he hates those you know, those families are families that are that Death Eaters. supporters, yeah. So maybe he has reason to, you know, hate them or they treated him some way that... Yeah. It's, it's interesting, though, because uh, yeah. everything else that we know about Pettigrew's character is that he always wanted bigger, stronger friends to look out for him. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be sort of almost ideal for him to be friends with Malfoy and Crabbe and Goyle? I mean, besides the fact that he's a rat and they probably wouldn't care about him at all. Um you know, he, he tends to be the guy who stands behind the bully, not the guy who stands up to the bully. Right. Well, maybe he feels that in his rat form, he can stand up to the bully. Um, <laughs> maybe. Or, yeah. I don't know. It's just interesting. I, but anyway, I never his thought one, about it's that. It's his one moment of glory as a rat. Yes. So we'll, we'll give it, it to is. him. You did a good job. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and the journey from platform nine and three quarters. We hope you've enjoyed our journey through this chapter and stay tuned for next time when we explore the chapter, The Sorting Hat. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on the Harry Podcast. Knox.